Lord, we do love you. Amen. We'd like to have you visit us and appear to us. Amen. We need your shining. Amen. We need your engraving. Amen. We need your smiling face. Amen. Lord, we'd like to look at the index of your eyes. Amen. Oh, Lord, shine into us. Amen. Shine through us. Amen. And shine out from us. Amen. 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 Well, praise the Lord Jesus. It's good to be with the church in Chicago. Amen. And I'm so happy Brother Bill was able to make it this morning. Amen. Amen. I um, would like to uh, walk you through the outline and mainly try and focus on Roman numeral four uh, so we can talk about some of the practical helps of this matter regarding the gospel to all the nations. And you know, when you see the title there, of course, topic five refers to the fifth topic of the faculty fellowship that we had this weekend. Uh, the word gospel there, uh, how do you all feel when you see that word? Does that inspire you, supply you, or does it make you want to run and hide under your bed? <laughs> all depends. Huh? <laughs> one of, one of, several of the above. Well, you know, the gospel, first of all, I'd just like to mention this one precious fact. The gospel is altogether a matter of come, go, come. Uh, if you look in the book by Brother Lee called The Age of the One New Man, there's a chapter called Come, Go, Come. And our brother has brought out that not only is there the line of overcomers, the line of the kingdom in the Bible, but there is such a line called the line of come, go, come. And I'll just make it brief to you. What does that mean? The first come is our coming to the Lord to transact with God. Not coming just to get refreshed, not coming just to be renewed, but to have a transaction with God. And the only way we can have transactions with God is by His light. So we are all together in need of light. And you know, Watchman Nee and the spiritual knowledge made it very clear. Why do brothers and sisters not receive light so often? It's because they don't ask for it. The number one reason we don't get light is that we don't ask for it. And so we want to be a people that cry out to the Lord every morning. Lord, I must have your visitation. I must have your appearance. I must have your light. And out of that light will come some dealing. Out of that light will come some new allowing of the Lord to gain new square footage in our being. Even maybe square inches, oh Lord Jesus. But at least he's always seeking to gain more ground in us. But there must be light first. And I just uh, appreciate our brother in this chapter brings out when we have the light and we're open to giving him more ground in us, the Lord will transact with us and something of ourselves will be diminished and something of God will be freshly added. And then we have a new Jesus. Every day we should have a new Jesus. We shouldn't have yesterday's Jesus. We should have a new Jesus every day. Amen. And in that new Jesus receiving, something gets engraved. And any kind of engraving requires a cutting away plus an adding of something. And our brother brought this out. If we have a new Jesus, we have a new song in our heart, if we have our joy revived in us in a morning revival time of letting the Lord touch us, and then we have this sense, I have passed through God and God has passed through me. And then he said this, that's the real coming. The first come of come, go, come. That's the real coming. And he said this, once you have that kind of coming, even in a regular way, 
you will have to go. You will have to be a person to preach the gospel because you've just inhaled God and you can only hold your breath for so long. Actually, our gospel preaching should be our exhaling of our freshly inhaled God. And he brought this out. How long can you hold your breath? It's not healthy to hold your breath. Gospel preaching, in a sense, really should be unintentional, unconscious, automatic, spontaneous, based on our inhaling of God himself. Thank God we do have such a ministry that directs a practical path of what it is to preach the gospel. It is just to exhale the freshly inhaled Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? Oh, you know, then you realize you go to the store, you've just inhaled the Lord, and you might uh, splash a little Jesus on someone unintentionally. You go, oh, sorry, did I wet you with Jesus? I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to splash you with Jesus. It'll just come out. It's, it's actually, you know, I love going to uh, Starbucks every now and then. They charge so much, so I don't go that often. But when I do go, they always ask, how are you doing today? And I love to tell them, well, the best way to describe it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And they really don't know what to do with that kind of answer. But if they're a brother or sister, they'll smile and give you a silent amen. And then he said that second go, excuse me, the second come is if you are a person inhaling God and then exhaling God on others, you will be a person with a real cry within, come Lord Jesus. You'll have a sense that every day could be your last day or it may be the day that he comes and you live in the instant appearing of the Lord. Come, go, come. If you read that in the chapter, uh, The uh, Age of the One New Man, it'll really, I think, give more meaning to our morning revival time and really to have us a kind of uh, a newfound desperateness. Lord, when I turn my heart to you, I want to really turn my heart and not just go through the motions in that way. So the gospel of this is something precious because it's organic, it's living, it's spontaneous, and it's something from the heavens that has just passed through us. So the gospel to the nations for the producing of the one new man. And it says there, it's vision, burden, and coordination. You know, we are a people of vision, and uh, we have to be a people of vision, and we need to ask the Lord, increase and, and deepen my vision. You know you, know, you know you have a vision. How, do you, how can you tell? When you have to grasp at a thought with your mind, that's just understanding. But when you have a vision, vision will grasp you, and it won't let you go. And I'm so happy, haven't we had at least, to some degree, a vision of the oneness of the body of Christ? We've had some degree of vision of the ground of the church. We've had a, especially this matter of our human spirit. Haven't you had a vision? And surely we want the Lord to give us a vision of this very one item, the one new man. And may the Lord arrest us. And may we not feel any way relieved until that burden in heaven becomes the burden passing through us and gets relived and lived out through us. So may the Lord give us such a vision. And then, of course, with every vision comes a burden. And with that burden, praise the Lord, there could be one accord and there can be some real coordination. So let's read uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And I'd like you to pay attention to how many times in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, how many times is them mentioned? 
T-H-E-M, them. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let's read that together. Amen. So in those verses, how many times is them mentioned? Looks like about four times. In God's eyes, when he first created man, in God's eyes, when he first devised man after that marvelous counsel that they had, his whole thought was a corporate man. And this corporate man, upon the shoulders of this corporate man, would rest the eternal purpose of God. And this eternal purpose has so much to do with God expressing himself through a corporate man and also representing himself through that corporate man. You know, I'm often asked, why, if you believe in God so much, and maybe you have too, why is it that there's so much unrest and there's so much death and murder and so many kids are going through this and that? What, where is your God? You know, have, have you ever been asked that? Why? If God's real, why isn't he real to take care of these things? And I tell them, you know, I appreciate what you're saying, but I have to tell you, our God, for some reason, is a gentleman. And he only will do what he needs to do to take care of the evil in this, in this world by using gloves. He won't do anything without a glove. And then they ask, what do you mean a glove? I would say, you, you're the glove. You and I are the glove of God. And God is ready with his hand to do everything you just said. But he won't do it without wearing you first. He won't do it without wearing the church first. And this is really the case. You know, I even, you can mention in Matthew, the Lord says the father knows when a little bird hits the ground, let alone when, when some evil is done before us. Surely God is rich in feeling, but for some reason he's chained himself to do it through man, whatever he wants to do. So I'm so happy, brothers and sisters, we're here not as individual Christians, but as a corporate man. Do you know how much the Lord anticipates every gathering of the corporate man on this earth in many localities? It's getting closer and closer to his full expression and even his full dominion. And then if we look at uh, Genesis 6, 6 through 7, let's just read those verses briefly. Genesis 6, 6 through 7. And I'll read those. It says, And Jehovah repented that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Were you aware of such a verse expressing the feeling of God about his 
center, core creation man, all of a sudden there's a feeling of repentance. There's a feeling of grief. And verse 7 says, And Jehovah said, I will blot out the man. Here he is, five chapters later, after he had created the man, after such a marvelous counsel, now there's a tone of blotting out the very center of his creation. And it says, Whom I have created from the surface of the ground, from man to beast to creeping things to the birds of the heaven, for I repent that I have made them. This is such a tragedy. This is such a, a catastrophe in the, the universe's history that at a certain point there was such a low point in God's move, in God's will, in God's purpose. And for some reason, the enemy was able to bring God to such a point. But our God is a God of recovery. He repented. He was full of grief. He even wanted to blot man out. But deeper than that was his heart of recovery. And so let's turn to Ephesians 2. It seems as if it is so clear that after Satan did the best he could do, the Lord had a plan of recovery. And you know, this is part of that multifarious wisdom that's mentioned in Ephesians 3.10. If you drive with me all the way to Spokane, Washington, from here, I hope you're a good mechanic because I don't even change my own oil or fix my own flat tires. I call AAA. Now, if you're a good mechanic, you might want to get into my 1999 Camry, which starts every now and then. And you might say, let's go, let's go to Spokane. And I tell you what, if you're a good, actually, if you're a real good mechanic, you can't wait till something goes wrong because then you get to show how good you are. Do you know that the Lord actually told Satan, do whatever you like to do and let me know when you're finished because what you've done, I will completely reverse. Matter of fact, I'll go further than what I originally planned apparently and what I've revealed to man. He is the top mechanic. And we're on a long ride and the evil one has done so much of corruption, so much of instilling and instigating rebellion, but the Lord is just crossing his legs, holding his hands and saying, let me know when you're done. This is our God, right? So look at what he did. Look at his recovery plan. Let's read Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. Create the two, where? In himself. This is the start of the recovery plan. In himself. And it's so marvelous. Into one new man. So there was a great, great repentance of God in Genesis 6. But by Ephesians 2, the Lord has taken up a whole other plan of recovery. And then if we turn to Ephesians 4, let's turn there. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. I'll read these verses to you. But you did not so learn Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him as the reality is in Jesus. This is referring to the actual condition of the God-man's living 
as revealed in the Gospels. This humanity is the base, is the foundation, is the core, is the essence, is the very source of what's to come. Look at this here. That you put off, as regards your former manner of life, the old man, which is being corrupted according to the lusts of the deceit. And that's what we see every day in the news, right? It's continuously being corrupted. But look at verse 23. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And I know you all had a rich heavenly dose from our brother Minoro regarding the mind and the mind being set on the spirit and the mind being renewed. Surely if you look at these three verses, 22 the old man, 24 the new man, but the bridge, the very reality that brings the gap into fulfillment is the renewing of our mind. And for some reason, brothers and sisters, we have yet to scratch the surface of what our spirit can do. Our spirit is waiting to take over our thought life, waiting to take over our imagination, waiting to take over our deliberation. Would you let the spirit move into to your mind? Would you let the spirit actually take over, even invade and spread and actually possess your mind? When we're in that tone, when we're in that reality, the Lord is actually seeing something. And that's verse 24 made real. Look at this. And put on the new man. Put on the new man, which was created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the reality. Lord Jesus gained this in us. Amen. Amen. Let's read Roman numeral one together. God's desire and purpose of eternity, a corporate man. Now, we won't look at those verses because of time, but this is the deep down desire of God. This is the purpose of God, and that's to have this corporate man. Now, many times uh, you may meet our own brothers and sisters in Christian groups that talk about going to heaven, and it's always uh, a good thing to just kind of listen and enjoy the fact that, yes, we're going to heaven, but actually, if you check with the Word and you check with the Lord, He'll tell you, I'm tired of heaven. Heaven is the Motel 6 to me. And I've spent some times in Motel 6s. And that's not a nice place to be. Very cheap. But I tell you, when you dry your face off, you also scratch your face off. Those towels are not made of linen. But anyway... In God's depths, heaven is just a motel. Where is the home of man, of God? Excuse me. Where is the home of God? The home of God is not even individually me or you. The home of God is a corporate man. Actually, God is homeless until he gets this corporate man. God is your God, our God, our mighty God. You know, Rick Scatterday once came to Spokane and shared with us something that I never heard anyone tell me before. He asked, what is it that God can't do? Is there anything he can't do? Think about it. You should ask your, your Christian friends or even some um, saints in the church, what do you think? Is there anything God can't do? And he brought this out, and I'll never forget it. Here's one thing, probably the only thing God can't do. He can't make himself the bridegroom. It requires our love. It requires our willingness. It requires our consecration. The only thing God can't do 
is make himself the bridegroom. He's waiting on us. And in the same sense, God will have no rest. He will forever be homeless unless we let him move in. Isn't that precious? Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, make your home in us as a corporate man. And if you look at uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11, I'll read that to you. This is the amplified version. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has planted eternity in men's hearts and minds. A divinely implanted sense of a purpose, working through the ages, which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. Yet so that men cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Uh, next year, I'm going to go to my 45th high school anniversary. I've never gone to one. And I heard that there's one brother, forgot what locality I heard the story in. He goes to every one because he gets to ride the white horse to every reunion he goes to. You know the gospel, right? And I can't wait to get, get to my 45th anniversary in Oakland, California, where I grew up. And I want to check with all of my former high schoolers. Do you know three things? What's your origin? What's your purpose? And what is your destiny? I want to ask all my former high school friends, what's your origin? In other words, where did you come from? And what's your purpose? Why do you get out of bed every day? And what is your destiny? Where will you be 10,000 years from now? I can't wait to hear what they tell me. You know, we know from John Newton where we'll be 10,000 years from now. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. So, you know, brothers and sisters, how many people are walking around with no sense of those three, origin, purpose, and destiny? And really, that came, it's explained right here in, the, in Ecclesiastes 3.11. God intentionally made every person with such questionings. And what a mercy. One day, I can't wait to tell them. I would like to give you the fourfold purpose of why you're here. You're here to obtain God. Number two, to contain God. Number three, to gain God. And then number four, to explain God. Isn't that what we're here for? We're here to obtain God. We're here to contain God. We're here daily to gain God. And we're here to explain God. To express God to people as one new man. So if you haven't gone to your, your reunion yet, high school-wise, go next year. Go, go as soon as you can. It's a great opportunity because this brother infused me. What an opportunity to bring Ecclesiastes 3.11 to those that know you and trust you to some degree. So in light of that, this desire in us is to have a corporate existence, is to be a corporate man. And yet, look at what happened in Roman numeral 2. Let's read that together. And sometime, according to the outline of the recovery version, you should look over these A through D. You'll get very impressed. But you could see four falls from God's presence to man's conscience, from man's conscience to others' control, from others' control to human government, and you know, once you get there, that's a real fall. And then from human government to rebellion under Satan's instigation. 
And what comes out? The ultimate expression of this fourfold fall, and we see it in our society, and we're going to talk about that today. We see in our society nothing but division. Nothing but division. So let's turn. It says, see footnote 2 of verse 7 on confound. So let's turn to Genesis 11 there, just to get a sense from the Lord of this matter of confounding and division. So Genesis 11, 7, and it says, I'll read that to you. Come, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And if you look at footnote two, so that mankind might not be able to form an alliance against him. Don't you sense in today's trends, there's an alliance throwing everything upside down from gender to uh, freedom to do this and that. There's an alliance secretly. It, used, it was very openly here. Now it's just gradually building up an alliance against him. God judged rebellious mankind with division and confusion. Mankind was scattered, divided in living, no longer able to live together in one place. Are all the ethnic groups able to live together here in Chicago? Or is that just our problem in Spokane? I'll, I'll let you consider that, right? And it says, and confounded, confused in language, no longer able to have the same speaking. That is, the same understanding, opinion, and concept. Almost impossible. Where in the world can you have people collectively with the same understanding, the same opinion, the same concept? But it says here, in contrast, in the proper church life, there is oneness and harmony. All the believers have one mind with one opinion and one mouth with one speaking, as our brother brought out so clearly during the table. In the rebellion of mankind at Babel, man fell to the uttermost, causing God to eventually forsake the created race of Adam and to call one man, Abraham, out of that race, that he might still have a way to fulfill his original purpose in creating man. And we're so thankful this is what the Lord's recovery is all about, to go back to this beginning. Now let's read the Roman numeral three together. The God Amen. Lord, do it in this age. And so Ephesians 4.13, until we all arrive, the hope was that the church in general would all arrive. But because the church in general would degrade, now the Lord is just asking for overcomers. And overcomers are not super Christians. They're not Navy SEAL Christians. They are Christians who realize their uttermost weakness and are helplessly dependent on God and the life of God within them. Brothers and sisters, would you sign up for such a list? Not only are we weak, actually, the more we go on with the Lord, we do realize how weak we are. And at a certain point, the more we go on with the Lord, we realize we're actually dead. Not only do I have little strength, I have no strength. And unless God operates in me, unless God moves in me, I have no way. At the end of Messenger on the Cross by Watchman Nee, 
Brother Lee is speaking to the, Brother Nee is speaking to his trainees there, Cooley Mountain, and it's a chapter on God's mercy. And he says this to them. He says, I speak to you as I'm shedding my tears because I have no guarantee that even next year I will still be here to stand and speak for the Lord unless his mercy keeps me. There is not one ounce in my blood, not one gene in my being that guarantees I will still be for the Lord. Only his mercy can keep us. Only his mercy can sustain us. Only his mercy will actually cause us to turn to him tomorrow morning. Do you know every turn of your heart to the Lord is initiated by the mercy of God? Oh, Lord, give us more of your mercy. Even intensify your mercy. That's why, you know, Romans 9 says we really are vessels of mercy, right? Oh, Lord, and if Watchman Nee felt that way, how much the more should we, right? But it says here, until we all arrive at the oneness of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God at a full-grown man, And I think we've all been quite touched by this matter of being full grown in relation to forming the army and numbers to enter into the good land collectively. You know, we've read and have appreciated since December of 1962 that marvelous conference, the all-inclusive Christ. But we've never had a collective approach, application, and entrance in that book until these days. The Lord is requiring, though, that we all be 20 years old to be in the army. And before him, we need to ask, Lord, how old am I? Not how long have I been around, but how old am I? Am I at least 20 to be in the army? So you can form an army to go into the good land to fight against the spiritual entities and to take in the riches of Christ. And I'm sure we've all been very impressed. The only way to get to the age 20 is to check. How are you looking when it comes to the third stage of the experience of life? And those six stations there are quite rich. First of all, dealing with the flesh. And then secondly, the second station, dealing with the self. Then it goes on, the third station, dealing with the natural constitution. Things that we can't even see in ourselves. And then the fourth station, accepting the discipline of the Holy Spirit. How much are we in the reality of those stations? You know, when I consider the discipline of the Holy Spirit and how much the Lord has in His sovereignty arranged my day, You know, usually if saints ask you, how was your day? If you say you had a good day, that really means everything went according to my preference. That's what we mean by a good day. But actually, God is trying to rob us of our preference and cause Christ to live through us. And so he'll use our environment, whether it's in traffic and you all have special, I think you have special love from the Lord because your traffic is phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's just absolutely phenomenal. But every situation, traffic outside, traffic inside, God has ordained that we would learn how to accept the discipline of the Holy Spirit so that something in us would be broken, something in us would be diminished, and something of God could flow through us. And it's a precious thing. And then the, the uh, fifth station is dealing with the Spirit. Our spirit needs to be dealt with. It's good to touch our spirit and to, to learn to live in our spirit, but our spirit oftentimes is not that pure. And we need a lot of dealing even with our mingled spirit. And then the sixth station is being filled with the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, when you have time, of course we hardly have any, but when you have time, be sure to dive into that third stage of the experience of life with the view, Lord, don't do this for my sake, 
but do it through me for the army's sake. Do it through us for the one new man's sake. Yeah, it's quite good. Okay, and then it says, at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and actually that's the last station, the fullness of Christ, in uh, the fourth stage in the experience of life. Quite rich. There's a lot there, but we won't go on that because of time. So in light of that, let's read A. What does this mean that the Lord is going to bring forth through the overcomers the one new man in this age? Let's read A together. Marvelous. And then B, let's read that together. Now we won't read those verses, but it's so clear in Galatians 3 and Colossians 3. There cannot be. There cannot be Spokenites. There cannot be Chicagoans. Is that what you all call yourself? Yeah. Hallelujah. And let's see. Where are you from? There cannot be Austinians. <laughs> Austinites, yeah. Austinites. What does that mean? That means that somehow in our daily life, gradually, day by day, we're allowing Christ to be our full replacement. And that full replacement causes us to come together, even if we're not together physically, as one new man on this earth. And it's so clear. Where is the expression, not of happy Christians, not of loving Christians, but where on this earth is the expression of the one new man? And we have to say, even among us, as our brother lamented before he went to the Lord, where's the expression of the body? Where's the reality of the body? And of course, if you read anywhere in Ephesians, he makes it so clear, the one new man's even higher and richer and deeper than the body. And so the Lord is calling us to do what Brother Ed Mark says quite frequently, to have something take place in us that's really impossible. Are you ready for the impossible? The whole Christian life's an impossibility. But it is what this divine, eternal, uncreated, and unlimited life of God does so well. It brings impossibilities into possibilities. And when you consider this matter of becoming the one new man, look at society. How much division, not only denominational division among Christians, but just division in humanity as a whole. It's as if the 1960s civil rights movement had no effect. And now what has surfaced is even more racial divide. And we were sharing this morning, Marty was reminding us, that it is so clear that the Lord's Day is the greatest day of segregation in this country. And I think Dr. King did say 11 a.m. every Sunday. That's the highest degree of racial segregation in the United States. What a shame. That's bringing us back to Genesis 6. That's bringing us back to what grieves him. That brings us back to what he repented of. That brings us back to what he wanted to blot out. So Lord, how can you get the one new man among us? How can you get not just the reality of the body, but on the basis of that, the one new man that out of chapter 4 would put on the fine linen righteousnesses of the saints of Revelation 19.8 to be the bride in chapter 5 of Ephesians, and even to wear the armor in chapter 6. It's the one new man that is the bride of chapter 5. It's the one new man that is the, ar the armor-wearing warrior of chapter 6. 
So the Lord must get the one new man in the local churches. And so let's look at Roman numeral four. Let's read that together. Endeavoring to match. The book of Acts is marvelous. And it tells us right off the bat, after his ascension, the Lord was so busy. So much more busy than after his incarnation. His earthly ministry, it was just from day to day, sometimes hour to hour, sometimes a seven-mile walk to Emmaus, whatever. All kinds of things, one at a time. But right now, ever since his ascension, the Lord is so busy in his heavenly ministry. And he just asked us, as his chosen people, to match him, to reflect him in his heavenly ministry. What is God doing in his heavenly ministry? One of the things he's doing is bringing forth the one new man. And so let's read Acts 17. Acts 17 is a very, very striking chapter. And if you look at verse 26, it says something here. It says, and he made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, determining beforehand their appointed seasons and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they might seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, even though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and are, and even as some poets among you have said, for we also, listen to this, we are also his race. And then look at that one phrase, 1729. Being then the race of God. Actually, in the whole world, there's only one race. And that's the race of God. What we call race of uh, black people, white people, Indians, and so on. We have this red color and these yellow colors. All of that matter, what we call race, is actually a social construct. This is one of the things we've learned in our pursuing since about 2012 regarding the one new man. Race is a modern human invention, only brought up since about the 1500s. Actually, brothers and sisters, race is not a physiological fact. It's not a biological fact. And I'm living proof. In 2004, I was uh, dying of liver failure, and I needed someone to offer me their liver. But how many livers do you have? <laughs> you only have one. So I didn't know how I was going to get someone's liver because we only get one. Do you know one brother in the Lord said, I don't have peace at night, Brother Scott, unless I offer myself. And he offered me two-thirds of his liver. And I went to Mayo Clinic in 2004. And they actually examined him. And they said, you can only have someone give you two-thirds of their liver because the liver is the only organ that regenerates, that grows, grows back. They said, you can only have someone do this, that they match you perfectly. My brothers didn't match me. Uh, a number of people tried to see if they matched me. They said, this man who came, a dear brother, under the microscope, even though he's Caucasian, even though he's a farm boy, and I'm... African-American urbanite, they said, under the microscope, you are closer than identical twins. Your blood type, your history disease, they just said on and on, no one matches you better than this so-called white person. And we went into an eight-hour surgery, and he saved my life. 
and Mayo Clinic saved my life, and of course, God used both of them as gloves to save my life. And I am indebted to the Southern Idaho farm boy. They said when they opened up his liver and cut two-thirds out, it was moving around and squirting. It had extra piping and plumbing. And they, and they threw away mine, which was like a dry sponge, and they said it was a perfect fit. And since then, it's been now 15 years, I haven't had one slight problem of rejection. And they said, you should live as long as, and I said, Moses? They said, yes, Moses. So, <laughs> praise the Lord. I get to be 120 <laughs> with my brother's liver. So, brothers and sisters, don't believe the lie. There is no such thing as race. There's only such a thing as ethnicities. And actually, if you look, everywhere you see in the Bible where it says the word nations or the word Gentiles, peel that English word back and underneath it is a Greek word, ethnos. So go disciple all the ethnos. Not go disciple all the geopolitical countries, but all the ethnos. And so God's thought is to reach every ethnicity with the gospel of the kingdom. Let, let's read Matthew 24, 14 with that in view. Matthew 24, 14. 24, 14 says, well, let's read it together. And where you, when you see the word nations... Change it to the Greek word ethnos, where we get the word ethnicity. Let's read 24, 14 of Matthew together. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all the ethnos, and then the end shall come. Lord Jesus, all the ethnos. So this brings us to this matter of the demographics within the churches there under A. In the Lord's recovery, there's anywhere from, in the United States, continental, 48 states, there's anywhere from 30 to 35,000 brothers and sisters, typically, generally. How many, though, are of the ethnos of African origin? Very, very small percent. Even though African Americans are 12.5% of the entire U.S. population, only one2 of the 30,000 are African-American in the Lord's recovery in the United States. 1.2. Based on the pool of the whole United States, the percentage should be at least 12% because there's 12% here, but only 1.2. About 400 African-Americans are sprinkled across the churches in this, in this country. And Texas is the largest with about 55 or 60. Why is that? What's holding back the expression of the ethnos multiple for the one new man? There's some kind of holding back, and this is what we want to fellowship and even consider before the Lord. Lord, how would you make it through? Why is it that most African Americans who grew up with a strong church background, grew up with a strong love and respect of the Lord's name, actually... I talked with the brothers, we talked with the brothers from BFA. They said, if you lay down a map of the recipients of BFA, Bibles for America, and wanting follow-up meetings, and you lay that over the map of where most African-Americans live, it's an identical match. The highest recipient of the BFA Bibles and the Bible readings are African-Americans because they grew up in such a setting of, of love for the Bible and love for the Word of God. But why is it 
that the number one group of recipients of Bibles for America aren't in the church life. And so this is part of our dilemma. This is part of our struggle before the Lord. And it all started in 2012 when Brother Benson Phillips asked another brother, Willie Wise, why is it that here in Houston, the, the full-time team labors and produces fruit, by the Lord's mercy, off of the campus of the University of Houston. But two blocks away is an HBCU, Texas Southern University. And an HBCU, HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. We have about 109 of them sprinkled across the country because for so long, uh, the racism and the, I would say the segregation insistence didn't allow African-Americans to go to higher education institutions. So ones rose up. And a lot of times, white Americans rose those up and did that in conjunction with them. So there's still about 109 or so HBCUs. There's an HBCU of about 4,000, 4,500 students, two blocks away from the University of Houston, and it's never tap, been tapped into. It's never been touched. Why is that? After all these years, the saints don't have a feeling about skin color. Actually, when you touch your spirit, there is no skin color. Can I have an amen? amen? Just taste and see, right? Once you taste and see, of course there's no skin color. But the problem is, like Brother Lee brings out, and if you could read this uh, chapter one in uh, fellowship regarding the urgent need for the vital groups, Brother Lee brings out, because he was talking about how we need, needed more people of European background in this country in the churches. And he brought out, why is it that they don't come? And it's very typical for African Americans as well. When they come to meet with us, they don't see people that look like them. And of course, the question is, what doesn't Acts tell us, Acts 10, that God's not a respecter of persons, God is colorblind? Isn't God colorblind? But he said, the problem is we're not selling our cargo to God. We're selling our cargo to people that are very color conscious. So how do you deal with people that are very color conscious to bridge them into the church life? According to, and we've been asking the Lord, the principle of incarnation. How to bridge them into the church life so that they could taste and see that the Lord is good. And this has been a big dilemma. So uh, back in 2012, uh, a number of brothers, with, with, because of Bert Benson's feeling, uh, that we so appreciate, uh, began to pray. And then by about 2014 or so, I joined that prayer and a number of other brothers. And then starting in 2015, we fellowshiped with the co-workers and uh, with Brother Benson especially. And he said, why not try to have a kind of a meeting where African-American brothers uh, and sisters are reaching out along with Caucasian brothers to, and sisters to the gospel, but mainly targeting African-American candidates, African-American contacts. And so we began that, and we had a conference. We, have, we had a weekend conference in, uh, what was it, uh, in December of 2015. And our whole thought was not to exclude anyone, but to emphasize focusing on contacting African-Americans in Houston. Houston has a population of about 4 million. Uh, 2 million are of European descent, 1 million of Latino, and another 1 million of African American. And so uh, we had quite a gathering, uh, and, and the brothers, Ed, uh, gave us a number of outlines to share. 
and the thought was how maybe to have uh, brothers of African descent sharing the messages, uh, leading the singing, at least put them in the forefront so that when they come in, they see people that look like them. It's not to create a black church, of course. That's completely outside of the one new man. But it's to, along the principle of incarnation, to reach ones where they're at. You know, it says in Colossians 2, 2, after the highest revelation of Christ in Colossians 1, you would think that their spirit may be enlightened, but Colossians 2, 2 says that their hearts may be comforted. And Brother Lee has brought out, unless we take care in the way of humanity, the hearts of people, they can never see the all-extensive Christ. The heart has to be taken care of. So we felt to pursue this according to our brother's uh, uh, feeling, and we did so, and we had a number of ones come, and we're just learning how to approach, how to be with them. And I, I'll give you some dates here just to let you know. In May of 2016, we went to New York City, and we had another weekend conference. And prior to that time, the brothers and sisters of all backgrounds pursued, especially folks of African descent. And they came, and there was some contact. That was in May of uh, 2016. Then in December of 2016, we did it again in Houston. And so what we do is every fall, we go to Houston, and then every May, we go either to Atlanta, where there's a high concentration of African Americans, or we go to Washington, D.C., or we go to uh, Brooklyn in New York, which has over a million African Americans just in the borough of New York City called Brooklyn. And so we've gone there in December of 2016 back to Houston. Then in May of 2017, we went to Atlanta. In December of 2017, back to Houston. In May of 2018, to D.C. In September of 2018, because of weather issues, we went to Houston. Then in May of 2019, we went to New York City again. And just in September, we were in Houston. And we had uh, the largest number of African Americans under one roof in the Lord's recovery we've ever seen before. Very encouraging, very encouraging. New as well as old, old uh, saints in the church. And we'd like to invite all of you. And we always send out a letter about these coming togethers. May of 2020, we're going to meet in Atlanta. And we would like to invite the church in Chicago and all the nearby churches to join us as one new man. Because as they are brought into the meeting and they see the myriads of ethnicities, they see a oneness that is not in society. They see a oneness that is not in Christian congregations. And they'll sense, even when we're eating with them, even when, the way we are with each other. Brothers and sisters, we're in a kind of a growing, gradual expression of the one new man already. And that's what people need to see. That's what people need to taste. And so we believe by meeting twice a year in this way, there's been some learning, there's been some growing. And so that really covers B, the surfacing. Now, what's come out in C, the resulting prayer and fellowship, I'd like to just give you a little insight of what's happened. And if you look at the United States, uh, about 80% of all African Americans live in East Texas, all the way through the South, especially the Panhandle of Florida, and then up to New York City, 80%. And actually, these states have 25% African American population. Florida, North Carolina, 
Virginia, Arkansas, and Tennessee. That means one out of every four is of African origin. And then one-third, 33% of this, these states' population are African-American. Uh, Alabama, South Carolina, Maryland, Louisiana, and Georgia. And Mississippi is the biggest one with 40% African-American in the whole state. But where is that reflected in the church gatherings? Where is that reflected in the church meetings? This has kind of been the kind of burden within so many of the saints. And, and let me give you uh, a little more stats here, and I'll try and end this in the next five minutes, if possible. But I just want to give you a little insight. Listen to these numbers, and you realize, Lord, how about the gospel of the kingdom reaching our dear fellow Christians already? Detroit. These are the ten, top ten cities with 100,000 or more population and the highest percentage of black Americans. Detroit, Michigan is 84% African-American. Jackson, Mississippi is 80% African-American. Miami Gardens, Florida, 78%. Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama is 74% African-American. Baltimore, 65%. Memphis, 65%. New Orleans, 61%. It goes on and on. And you consider, Lord, what about in those lampstands? Why isn't 60% expressed in those meetings? It's because there are five gate guards. And I'd like to give you this list, and that's why you have a little space at the end of your sheet. What are the barriers that prevent people that love the Bible, that love Christ, what are the barriers preventing them from jumping into the church life? The number one barrier is history. This is the number one gate guard, the number one gatekeeper. History. And it's mainly history of 225 years of slavery from 1640 to 1865 and 345 years of government-endorsed racial segregation starting in 1619 when the first Africans came here all the way to 1964 with the Civil Rights Movement. So we're talking about 225 years of slavery, 345 years of racial segregation. This has created a kind of bitterness, a suspicion, toward us, even if we're holding the Bible, if you don't look like them, because of the generational oppression that has come out of that since 1964. It's really quite strong and quite prevalent. And all you need is another police shooting. All you need is another kind of person being called because they were barbecuing somewhere. Before you know it, it's more intensified than ever today. So history. And then number two, uh, culture. And this matter of culture is mainly regarding worldview and self-identity. Worldview and self-identity. African Americans typically have created a subculture by which they can survive, by which they can navigate daily constant finger pointing, daily constant oppression of, 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 of a number of sorts. And so they have a kind of, within the understanding, the way we live is living in a collective kind of culture. Then number three, tradition. Tradition is a big one. And tradition, in a sense, this is a matter of the family first and everything's collective. And so as you approach, Brother Lee told us in the uh, fellowship about the urgent need for the vital groups, as you approach any group of people, you should study first. What is it about their habits, their disposition, their way of life, the, how they carry things out? 
before you approach. And so we've been considering these things. And so, in a sense, tradition, family, you can't break the family bond and not suffer consequences. Then number four, religion. The pastor to a typical African-American is like the Pope to a Catholic. It is really strong. And that's who they trust. And so you can't touch the pastoral system. You can't approach it as if it's not in the Bible, although it's not there. You have to kind of be sensitive and aware. And then lastly, politics, number five. That's another main problem that African-Americans feel as if uh, there's so many bounce checks regarding justice, fairness, and equality in so many ways. So we've been helped to realize when we approach people of African origin in this country, these five things are operating to create suspicion, to create mistrust, even though your intention, our intention is pure and good. So what can we do? One thing we can do is pray. Lord Jesus, break down the gate guards. Lord Jesus, break through the gatekeepers. We must pray. And then secondly, we can ask the Lord, teach us how to do like you did on the way to Emmaus. You just walked with those two brothers. You walked with them to such a degree, they didn't even know it was you. He was so human. And he didn't come with clarity and, and light. He just asked questions and got to be where they are and got to be on the same level as they are. And eventually there was a chance for light to come. And so this is a, a big thing. And then I'd like you to write down these five, what I consider the five pillars of racial discrimination, of, of racism, of, dis, of prejudice. And this is in every human heart. There's not one group of people that have, does not have this tendency or problem. There is not one group of people that are just a certain way. We as humans have five things operating in us that produce a kind of prejudging of others, regardless whether it's age or females, whatever it may be. Number one, fear. What's operating in our heart about someone that's different from us is a sense of fear. And then number two, ignorance. We don't understand their background. We don't know why they speak in that way. We don't know why they dress like they do. So we're very quick to judge. Then thirdly, I think this is a big one, cultural myopia. Myopia means short-sightedness, nearsightedness, right? Nearsightedness. And so we have a lot of cultural nearsightedness. We only see what's within our comfort zone. We can't see outside of that. And then I think a, a big one that uh, is, is more common to us as well uh, is insecurity. Why is it that we feel threatened or uneasy around someone that's different from us is because of insecurity. And then finally, the catch-all, regardless of where we are, selfishness. Selfishness operates in us and automatically puts up a barrier toward another person. But the good thing is, there are five antidotes. To the fear, we just need exposure. The more exposure we have, that's why college is so wonderful. Folks never met people that different except on a college campus. That's an opening there to take care of that problem. That's why the Lord wants to work with young people because in the young people setting, they're willing to be exposed. And then ignorance, of course, education. Uh, the matter of formal or informal education can open up this matter of ignorance. Why have people of Mexican descent feel that way about those topics? Find out their history. Find out that North 
Mexico used to be California. And then you can somewhat understand what's ingrained inside and so on. And then when it comes to uh, insecure or cultural myopia, immersion. The more we get immersed around another type of culture, of course, world travel does that to us every time, we get a sense that our way isn't the only way. And then when it comes to insecurity, a sense of dignity. We need to see that we have God-given inherent worth and no difference in another human being is a threat to my being made in the image of God. And then finally, selfishness. The only antidote for selfishness is sacrifice. And there's only one person I know that will sacrifice, and his name is Jesus. And I mean sacrifice of, of in a sense, of being willing to rock the boat, maybe even shake up a few feathers when someone uses a racial slur or a racial joke to stand up and say, I don't agree with that. Because your conscience is already telling you you don't. But to speak up and to say that is to sacrifice your face. And in a sense, these five items actually can erase the impact of those five pillars. But they can only be carried out in, with, and through our mingled spirit. So we need to be a people that are willing to learn, willing to be open, and willing to spend time with people different from us for the sake of the gospel of the one new man. So brothers and sisters, uh, I, I wished uh, I could uh, spend more time with you on this. And uh, we always have fellowship prior before each conference in the localities. We'd love for you to come. I just want to mention this in closing. Along the principle of incarnation, there's a big difference when you meet up with someone who looks different from you. And the difference is this. What's the difference between hearing and listening? Oftentimes, many people hear, but hardly anyone listens. Listen, listening demands that you drop your perspective and take on that person's perspective as valid, as authentic, as real. And that is the principle of incarnation. Look what Jesus Christ, the Almighty God, did. He became a man so he could listen. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, regardless of your skin color, if someone senses that you're listening to them, you automatically overcome that suspicion with trust. Trust comes in. And once trust comes in, then there's a bonding. There's a relationship. And with that relationship, there can be mutuality. Listening requires that we drop our own perspective. And the demand to listen, to drop your own perspective, is nothing but love. We just love people. We love, I don't care how different they are from me. I love them. That love demands that I drop my perspective and that I allow what they have gone through, their lived experiences, I honor as true. And once you have that, brothers and sisters, uh, we've learned and we're coming to see no difference is the problem. Just a human connection with a divine context can bring ones even into a safe place to receive the riches of the ministry of the age. And we want this for many localities, for even, as it says, when the gospel of this kingdom gets preached, the end shall come. So may the Lord gain us in reaching out to others. And we've seen so many brothers and sisters of all ethnicities increased awareness, increased consciousness, and increased spirit of, Lord, I'm a student, I'm a learner. Teach me how to deal with mankind for the sake of the one new man. Praise the Lord. So you're all invited. The first weekend in May, please come to Atlanta. 
We'll have more fellowship, and we'll even send a letter here as we usually do to the, all the churches. But we're just so glad the one new man must be increased. The one new man must be testified. And the one new man must defeat and shame the devil to the uttermost. Amen. Just for the enemy to be put to shame and for God to be expressed, all of it's worth it. We want to give our all to the one new man. Amen. Amen.